think I'm damaged goods. I'm worried about losing my job. Will I ever get a transplant? I want to see my children graduate from college. How can I afford this? I don't want to be a burden. I'm afraid. I'm overwhelmed with information. Sometimes I wonder if I'll ever fall in love and get married. I just want to play with my friends. You're listening to Kidney Talk, streaming health, happiness, and hope to the renal community with your hosts, Lori Hartwell and Stephen First. Well, we're here today with another episode of Kidney Talk, and I'm really excited because I have Garrett Hill with me. He is the president and founder of the National Kidney Registry. Welcome to the show, Garrett. Oh, thank you. Tell us a little bit about why you developed the National Kidney Registry. And I want to hear a little bit about your personal story. So um, my daughter, when she was uh, 10 years old, she lost her kidney function, and it was pretty sudden. Uh, She had a genetic disorder, uh, and we ended up in the emergency room. And two days later, she was on dialysis. And um, I didn't know much about kidneys at all. I don't think I knew I had two kidneys at the time, um, but learned pretty quickly. Uh, So she ended up, uh, we thought we were hopeful that she, it was an acute problem, but in fact, her kidneys were gone um, because that's the way this disease worked. And so uh, we started doing the research and, you know, I went on the internet and I read a lot of books and it became very clear that um, a living donor uh, transplant would be her best option. Uh, We then started to, um, you know, look around the family and friends and figure out who was compatible. I was luckily the same blood type as her, so uh, I was a good match. So I went through the process of being worked up to be a donor. Uh, 36 hours prior to surgery, I learned that I couldn't donate because I'd failed not just the one final cross match, but they retook it and I failed twice. Um, So it was likely that she would reject my kidney. Uh, That was a shock because when you're the father and you you can donate, you're kind of in control of the situation. And and when you uh, become incompatible, in this case, my daughter got two units of blood that created some antibodies, and one of them was directed against my B60 antigen. It was pretty potent. So yeah, you lose control of the process. And then we had, um, she had my, my daughter had three uncles that had also stepped up and who were initially identified as compatible. They all failed that cross match within three weeks. We had an altruistic donor who had stepped up. She was the three antigen match. She failed. So we had five people wash out of the donation process in a period of you know, three or four weeks. So after that, um, we launched an extensive donor campaign. We reached out to everybody that we knew to see if they would get tested um, and, and to determine if they were compatible. Um, and I also entered myself and my daughter in every paired exchange program in the United States. Um, and that was back in 2007. So um, the paired exchange thing didn't work. They, there seemed to be a lot of problems with the paired exchange programs, whether it was just they weren't industrial strength or they didn't have the right software. Um, but we couldn't get her a match through paired exchange. And I thought that was kind of crazy because she only had a 70% PRA. So it wasn't that, you know, you'd, you'd match three out of 10, you know, with those numbers. And so I realized that there was a huge opportunity to improve the, the paired exchange process. And there was also a need for a national system. So that's why we created the National Kidney Registry. Now, my daughter eventually um, was, we, we screened 15 people and she was compatible with uh, one person, my uh, my nephew. And so he donated in uh, July of 2000 and 
seven and both he and my daughter are doing very well so we got we got lucky but there's a lot of people in the united states and around the world who aren't lucky they've got incompatible donors and and we can get them matched and transplanted so we formed the national kidney registry to solve this massive problem of incompatible donors and so far uh, in the last two years we've transplanted 50 percent of the people who've joined the program which is far and above you know what the numbers i saw when i was going through the process were at the time it was like you'd get you'd be lucky to get 10 or 20 percent transplanted um so um that's that's kind of the story behind the now Explain the pair donation process. Like every different parts of the country have different systems. So when you go to like a pair donation program in Cincinnati, they enter you just into a small computer with just a couple of patients. Is that how it works? It's it's a it's kind of a mixed bag. Um, when I went through the process, I must have reached out to seven or eight different programs, and some of them were single center program. So they had a paired exchange program within the transplant center. And that's a challenge because it's a small, uh, it's a small pool, but more importantly, you've got to go to that transplant center. So let's say one of our centers is, uh, that we work with now is, uh, UCSF. And, and back when I was trying to get my daughter, uh, find a compatible donor and, and do a swap, I went to UCSF to, to enroll her. The, the challenge is I would have had to fly her out to, you know, I live in New York and would have fly her out to California for the transplant, which really being close by matters. Um, so some of them were single center uh, exchanges and, and the, the challenge there is you had a small pool and you've got, you've got to go to that center. And there were multi-center exchanges. There was a handful of those, but those were, they were regional, they were spotty. And in a couple cases, they required you, they were telling me I'd have to move my daughter to that center and the center was in a different state even though it was a multi-center exchange they weren't working with the centers that my daughter's being worked up in new york and so it seemed that um you know many of these networks at the time were using this paired exchange capability as almost a way to gain market share and force patients to go to the centers that may be far away um, and that was one of the founding principles of the registry uh, we wanted to make it an open system so if you were at a hospital in Florida, you didn't have to go out of state to be involved in a paired exchange. We'd work with you in that state. Um, and that, that that's worked out pretty well. So tell us a little bit how the National Kidney Registry works. It's a sophisticated computer system. Can you explain the matching process of how, they, how you load a... Um, uh, incompatible donor in and then how it sure, matches. The, um, there's two types, two fundamental types of matching. There's uh, what I call traditional paired exchange where my daughter needs a kidney and, and let's say um, your son needs a kidney and so I can donate to your son, you can donate to my daughter. But the problem with traditional paired exchange is you have to get back from the pair you give to and given antibodies and blood type incompatibility, the chances of, of a swap like that happening are very small, which is why you know, in hindsight, it's why I couldn't get a match for my daughter because people were using that traditional paired exchange model. Um, we've founded or, or kind of built the foundation around chain transplantation where an altruistic non-directed donor donates to a stranger and starts a chain. And then, so let's say there, as there's a, we call, I like to call them Good Samaritan donors. So let's say a Good Samaritan donor donates to my daughter. I'm now free to give to anybody in the pool, and I give to the next recipient whose incompatible donor gives to the next recipient and kind of creates a chain reaction. So our matching system is really, uh, we do both, but the majority of our transplants come out of chain. Um, and then there's two components to a chain. There's the, the Good Samaritan donor, 
uh, who registers on our website and kind of goes through our process and we turn them over to a transplant center once they're they're completely screened. They come to us and we kind of, we have a screening process through our website. Uh, the incompatible pairs or poorly compatible pairs go to the transplant center and the transplant center enters them into our system. And so you've got kind of feeds coming from both sides. And when I do a match run, I just select the uh, Good Samaritan donor and I hit a button. The software is very complicated. Um, you know, it looks at in a, in a, uh, like a four deep, uh, cluster in a pool that's got 100 people in it, we'll look at 100 trillion possibilities. And that's just four deep. And our software goes 12 deep. And if you look at the number of possibilities that are 12 deep in a pool of 100, it's 10 to the 46th power. And that's how we're able to find all these matches. Because when you're looking at that many combinations, you can usually find something. Now, did you develop this software? Um, well, my organization developed it. Uh, there's a there's a brilliant guy who uh, works with us. His name is Rich Marta, and he's the software engineer behind uh, this amazing software. And he is a gifted person. This software could not be written by an, a typical programming person because it's just way too complex. Uh, so we've probably got, across the whole team, we've got about 12,000 man hours into the software. And the software is, is some of the most complicated software software I've ever seen, but it, 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 you know, it's needed. <laughs> now I like to refer to it like your system is kind of like dating for kidneys. It's like you go onto harmony.com and you put in all your traits and then they find you a match. Is that pretty much what your system is? You know, is I, I used to, I, yeah, I used to think of it that way. It's a, uh, you know, matching, uh, kidney matching is kind of like a dating service. You're looking at attributes. In this case, you're looking at medical attributes and you're seeing who you're compatible with. And, um, and that's, that's a very good way to look at it. <laughs> I know. It's, it's, it's the same thing. And hopefully you have a perfect match out there somewhere. Everybody has somebody for somebody, right? Well, there's, let me draw a distinction. There's a difference between a perfect match and a match. A perfect match is generally referred to as a six-antigen match. If you're lucky enough to have a six-antigen match, um, those kidneys usually last 40 to 60% longer than other kidneys because the host or the re recipient doesn't attack that kidney either you know in an acute phase or a chronic rejection because it looks like that person and then there's there's a, a match and you know any match is good because you know a living donor is so much better than all the other alternatives um, even a six antigen match deceased donor kidney doesn't last as long as a zero antigen match living donor kidney so living donor kidneys are the are your best bet even though they're not perfectly matched but a perfectly matched living donor kidney um, has a half-life of 28 years that's the holy grail that's what i wanted for my daughter and i couldn't get it and we actually i'm so excited about this we just made a match a couple weeks ago which was a six antigen match between strangers well Tell us a little bit about the expectant life expectancy of a kidney for a deceased donor and a living donor. Yes, I I call it kidney life years. And this is based on research that Dr. Tarasaki and Cheka uh, published in their textbook, uh, Clinical Transplants, and uh, and I discovered this right you know right when my daughter had was in the hospital and I read you know all the books and and it, it was pretty clear that there's different um, uh, kidney life year expectancies for different types of transplants uh, for deceased donor um, standard criteria donor kidneys the half-life is is 10 years roughly 10 years uh, for a six antigen match uh, standard criteria donor it's 14 years for a, a zero to five antigen match living donor, it's 17.8 years, roughly 18 years. And for a six antigen match living donor kidney, it's 
28 years. 28 so there's years. some there's some big differences in uh, antigen matching. You know, there's a lot of controversy around antigen matching, but it does matter. Um, the more antigens that you match on, the better the better the you know the fit, and also the fewer antibodies your body will create against that transplanted kidney. Which means that if you have to go for another transplant, um, you'll have you will be less sensitized, and you'll have a better opportunity to get transplanted on subsequent transplants. So antigen matching, even though it's been like I said, it's, you know, it's controversial, and some people in the medical community have not given it its full credit. It it really does matter. Tell us a little bit about how it works. Like if you're in the center and does the kidney come to you and how does the kidney get to the recipient? Well, that's changed over the last two years because when we started the the National Kidney Registry, um, the paradigm was that donors would travel. And we had some donors travel, but what we did is instead of like requiring donors to travel or recipients to accept shipped kidneys, we allowed the patients to set their preferences. So if a donor was going to travel, we'd ask them what centers they would travel to. If a recipient, um, you know, even asked if the recipient would travel to the donor center, and that's happened once or twice. Um, and then we also allow the recipients to identify whether or not they'll accept a shipped kidney. And interesting over the last two years, we've seen a pretty big sea change in this, and, and the medical professionals have gotten much more comfortable with shipping donor kidneys. And there's some research out there that indicates that uh, shipping living donor kidneys has virtually no impact on the success of that transplant. And so uh, there's a preference. Usually their donor wants to recover with their family and their local community in their town or you know their local hospital and so um, it's just easier for the donor if the donor doesn't have to travel and I you know when I started this I, I was of the mindset that the donor should travel because I was willing to travel anywhere you know to donate my kidney to get one for my daughter um, but it didn't it does it's not working out that way there's not a big advantage to the donor traveling and it's so much more convenient for the donor to donate at their local hospital that we're doing we're, we're mostly shipping the kidneys. And so, you know, if you have a loved one that needs a transplant and you're involved in a swap, you both go to the same hospital and you both recover in the same hospital. Well, currently there's about 80,000 people on the kidney transplant list and there's only about 15,000 transplants happening per year. Tell us how your system's going to help meet this demand. Well, there's two ways. Um, one is I believe that of the 80,000 people on the wait list, there's probably 10 to 20,000 that have incompatible donors. So if we can get to those people, and that's one of our biggest challenges is to get the word out. If somebody has an incompatible donor, they can get a transplant. Um, we need to get them into our program. One thing, one way we'll, we'll reduce that list is to get these folks transplanted. And what happens, there's, a, there's kind of a double benefit to this. Um, if you can get 100 people transplanted who have incompatible donors, those 100 people, they got the transplant, but they also just came off the list. And another 100 people moved up and took their position on the list. And so 100 paired exchange transplants is really equal to facilitating 200 transplants. And so if we can get these 10, 15, 20,000 people that are that are on the list that may have incompatible donors transplanted, we pull those people off the list, the list gets shorter. But there's another there's another factor here that we're, we're starting to appreciate. We have a lot more Good Samaritan donors stepping forward. They see the power of, of donor chains. Um, you know, the average our average chain length is about six. So one, in one person now, one Good Samaritan donor, instead of helping one person, they can help six people on average. And that's, that's that awareness has, has gotten more people involved in it. So I think 
as a result of what we're doing in the publicity around it, there are more Good Samaritan donors stepping forward. And so that's just more living donor transplants that didn't exist before. Where was the longest chain done? Wasn't it like involving about 12 people? We've had two chains that went 12 deep. They involved 24 people. So we got 12 transplants done, but there were 24 surgeries in each one of those chains. And um, yeah, those were those were all done in the past year. And what? Uh, how much time does it take to do 24 transplants? Was it all done in one day or three days or six months? Well, in one of the chains, we did 17 surgeries in one day. So 17 out of the 24 happened in one day. But the other surgeries, in that, in that specific chain, we had 20 of the surgeries happening over six days. We had um, the other four surgeries happened like four months earlier, you know, so it was in that case, I had a chain where we had a bridge donor who had to wait for a while until they found a match. And then I, then I put a match out for the remaining 10. Uh, and those went down in a fairly short period of time. It was actually the week before Christmas last year. It was a very busy week for many of our transplant centers, but really a great, you know, great Christmas present. One of the things that I think is interesting is that, you know, I've always thought that it's best to have a family member donate to you. And what we're learning a little bit about is the antibodies. And can you explain the antibody uh, pool and how if somebody has a 70% PRA level, what that means? Sure. Um, yeah, in some cases, family members aren't the best match. You know, and specifically uh, mothers, uh, their children are, there's usually, not usually, but there in many cases can be an, an antibody issue there because during the delivery process or, you know, and that the the mother creates antibodies against um, the, some of the father's antigens. And so that's a clear example where being related is not necessarily a, a great thing. Now, uh, that problem doesn't happen between a, a child and their father. So um, that's usually a pretty good the Parent to sibling is always a three antigen match, three out of six. So that's generally a good match. Three antigens is a good match given what's out there. The best matches uh, between family members are between siblings. Siblings have a 25% chance of being a six antigen match. You know, so if you've got a brother or sister, there's a 25% chance that you'll be a six antigen match. And that's a tremendous match. Um, those are the matches that have the half-life of 28 years. You know, there's a lot of other benefits that accrue. So the best matches between siblings, uh, parent to child, child to parent, are always usually three antigen matches out of six because you pick up half of the genetic profile of your, your parent. Um, and then, um, uh, you know, when you get further away from that, cousins and whatnot, it starts to dilute some more. But, you know, there, you have the other issue of age. It's not just antigens. There's there's three factors that impact uh, the uh, the compatibility of a donor. One is uh, antigen matching. Uh, and the more antigens you match on, the better, of course. And then there's a second issue, which is donor age. The younger the donor, the longer that kidney generally lasts. Um, now, there's not much of a difference between, a, say, a 33-year-old donor and a 27-year-old donor, but there's a big difference between a 65-year-old donor and a 40-year-old donor. Um, or, or even with that, um, you know, between 40 and 50, there's not too much of a difference, but it starts to amplify as you get closer to age 60 and then certainly above 65, um, those you start to see uh, a shorter or lower graph survival rate. Um, so age, age may be the most powerful factor. Antigen matching is probably secondary to age. Um, and then the other one that's been, there's not a lot of research on it, but donor weight is also an important consideration. If you are a 240 pound guy and your donor is a 95 pound woman, that's not 
the greatest mesh because you need big filtration capacity to filter the blood in a 240-pound guy. So uh, that's another factor that's kind of out there. So a lot of times you may have a family member that may be a reasonable antigen match but is not the right age compatibility or weight compatibility, and you can then trade that donor to get a donor in a swap, to get a donor coming back to you that's much more compatible. We've seen that many times. A lot of times, if you have a compatible donor, um, we can improve on the match. And that's important because then the kidney will last longer. And the best candidates for that are any recipient who is an A, a B, or an AB blood type that has an O donor. O donors are, there's a shortage of O donors. And so if you are an A, an AB, or a B recipient and you have an O donor that's compatible, you should definitely consider going into an exchange. It's likely that you're going to get a donor that's a better match for you and that kidney will last longer. Now, so explain a little bit because O's are the universal blood donors, correct? That's right. And so when is it normally an O that starts a kidney chain? No, we've started um, about, we've started like 20 chains and about half of them were started by O's and the other half were started by A's, B's. And actually, we've never started a chain with an AB because an AB can only give to an AB and that's only like 3% of the population. So it's, it's very hard to start a chain with an AB. And it's actually these days, it's kind of hard to start a long chain with a B or an A. The longest chains are started with O donors. Now, what's the cutoff for being a, a uh, altruistic donor. Uh, you mean age cutoff? Age cutoff. Um, we've had we've got many altruistic donors that have that have come through that are in their sixties. So usually the cutoff is sixty five. Um, but even here's the thing though, even if somebody's like sixty seven or sixty eight and they're in good condition, that's still better. That could still be a better outcome than a deceased donor kidney. We've got we've had donors. These weren't. Uh, good Samaritan donors, they were directed donors, but um, we've had directed donors come through the system in their 70s, and they've that's that's worked. Obviously, when you're above 70, it's you know, you, you want to possibly get a younger donor, and a lot of times people that at that age don't make it through the medical workup. So, um, your best donors are, are certainly under 65. 65 is kind of like the I guess, the line in the sand in many cases. One of the things you bring up is medical workup. The people who are considering being a donor are extensively worked up, and then they find out if they're um, capable of giving a kidney. And there's been some recent studies that come out that it hasn't uh, decreased the lifespan of somebody who's given a kidney, which is very encouraging because when you're asking for a kidney or you need one, you feel guilty that you might be shortening that person's life because they're giving up an organ. Well, and, uh, that's Yeah, that's certainly not the case. There was a lot of studies on this. Um, and the the uh, the most recent one kind of tied together the Social Security master files with some other data. The bottom line is that the donors typically living donors typically live longer than the average person. And the pe you know people who studied this said, look, it's it's because it's a self selection bias because they only select um, donors uh, that are are re in really good you know, physical condition, but it doesn't shorten your life. And the, uh, the other thing that has kind of been debated is uh, some people believe that living donors live longer because they're happier people because they've, you know, they've made this donation and they 
you know, it's it's a positive event in their life. But obviously, it's very hard to support that that position. But there's that's that's kind of the debate: is it because it's a self-selection bias, or or is it um, because these folks really, you know, they they've done a wonderful thing and they know it, and they they take that into their their old age, and it's a happiness factor. So, uh, but there is there's a lot of research that indicates that the average living donor outlives the average person. Now, is there a cost for joining uh, your National Kidney Registry? Uh, for running it, sure, yeah, there is, and we've we've run the registry pretty much on charitable donations for the first, uh, I guess, uh, two and a half years, um, and uh, we've had, boy, we've had over 500 people um, donate, uh, and then we've had a lot of people just kind of contribute their service. We have a lot of volunteers. But if I'm a patient that wants to go and you know check it out, is there a cost to the patient? No, there's no cost to the patient. So do you work with different centers now, and so you're pulling them into the system, and then the patient just goes to their center? Yeah, we, it, the, yeah that model's changed, too, because early on, we, we tried to work with patients directly, but boy, it was, you know, that's that's a... That's a hard model to support, especially when you have you no know, fee-based revenue. And and the other thing too is that we really need the patient to go to the transplant center because the transplant center is the place that's going to work them up. They're going to get the antibody information, the antigen information. We can't do that, and so we kind of abandoned what we called the retail model early on, and we just focused on bringing more transplant centers into the network. So if somebody calls us and and they say, you know, we need help and, and we get some background, we'll coach them, but we'll say you got to get to one of our participating centers. And since we've got 50 centers we're working with now, we're, we've got really good geographic coverage. There's usually a transplant center in your region that we're working with, and we'll get you into that transplant center, and they know what to do. Um, so we, we train the transplant center on how to load the data in our system and whatnot. So um, early on, that was a problem because we didn't have good geographic coverage, but now we're, we're pretty close to most most metropolitan areas. So we don't, we you know, we can get you to a center that is working with us. Now, tell me a little bit about your vision for the National Kidney Registry in the future. My vision is that the National Kidney Registry uh, continues to grow at 300% a year, which is what we've been growing at right now. And uh, we'd like to be doing, you know, we want to facilitate in 2011, 500 transplants. We've gotten 120 done so far. But I see that the vision of the National Kidney Registry, there's, there's two components to it. Right now, I'd say 95% of the transplants that we facilitate are incompatible donor-recipient pairs. I see a future where that starts to drop and a larger and larger percentage of the transplants that we facilitate are compatible pairs that are coming into an exchange to improve the donor-recipient match so that kidney lasts longer. So I, I think there's going to be a tipping point some year, and I think 10 years from now we'll be past that, but I think that the majority of living donor transplants will go through swaps. They won't, you know, husband won't give to a wife directly. They'll go through an exchange, and that will improve the outcomes for everybody. And it'll also get more uh, hard-to-match recipients, transplanted, people who have very high PRAs. Um, o blood types are hard to get matched, um, and certainly O blood types that have high PRAs are hard to get matched. And I think that by getting more compatible pairs to flow through the pro- I don't think I know the math just works that way, we'll get a lot more incompatible pairs transplanted. So I see that as uh, one big move. And the other thing is the National Kidney Registry will eventually become international. We're talking to other countries right now. We're actually working on international swaps. You know, a person who lives in the UK or Japan, they're no different biologically than 
than somebody who lives in the United States. And uh, by casting a wider net, we'll be able to help more people. The more it, this is a numbers game, and um, if we can get other countries involved in this process, we can we can help people in those other countries. But we'll also be able to help more people in our country. And it's, it's a it's a cooperative effort. So I, I see it eventually becoming an, an international uh, system. We can have a brand called Transplant Airlines, huh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That'd be well, fun. Well, <laughs> yeah, the, um, the, that's the, the other thing that's been pointed out is that the international thing, the only barrier to international is really politics and money. It's not medicine because it's been proven that shipping a kidney, you know, 10 hours versus 20 hours has very little impact, especially if it's a living donor kidney. So that that's research has been done for a long time. So going to Tokyo versus going to, uh, you know, uh, San Francisco, it's not, it's not a big deal. It makes sense. But yeah, we'll, we'll be, there'd be a lot. Of, we wouldn't probably hire a separate airplane for that, but there'll be a lot of uh, kidneys moving through the air. Now, one of the things I thought was interesting is I've heard, uh, well, you put a kidney on the plane and if the plane crashes, and then what happens? <laughs> I guess it's better than putting the donor on the airplane and having the airplane crash. Um, well, they, they, we we actually we do worry about that, um, and we we handle that two ways. And it's not just a plane crashing; that's a fairly rare event. But a plane could get misdirected; it could go to another airport, airport or whatnot. So we use GPS tracking devices on all the the ship kidneys. Um, and so, you know, if a kidney's going from Los Angeles to New York, we want to see that every step of the way. Um, and so we 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 uh, we started using these GPS tracking devices so that the transplant centers on both sides of the swap can see the movement of the kidney and they can see it every, you know, every minute, literally. Um, that's one thing that I think is important for the safety of these things. The second, uh, the second uh, issue is uh, we also do uh, backup backup lists uh, before the swaps in all locations so that if in, if something happens to say the recipient if the recipient gets sick sick at the last minute um, they we won't we won't waste that kidney that kidney will go to somebody on the wait list um, so that that's the backup list and that's a fairly um, rigorous process before we go through any of these swaps we have a third a third variable or third we'll call it a safety net um, and that is, our, we have a, what's called a chain ending policy, and, and one of the policies that our medical board um, uh, has, has approved is the, the use of, it. we can end chains at any time, right? So we end chains to the deceased journalist. If we have a recipient who, for, for whatever reason, that kidney didn't get the recipient, but the recipient's donor is donated, and they're kind of left without a kidney, um, we will then end a chain to that recipient. Um, so that that's a very powerful safety net because we actually had a situation where, and it wasn't a, a plane that went down, but it was a, a bridge donor that backed out of a swap after the, you know, the further down the chain that, that recipient's donor had already donated. You know, that, that's a bad situation. Um, in this case, it was a mother whose daughter had already donated and she didn't, she didn't get... A kidney because right before the swap, the donor on the other side got the flu, and then two weeks later, that donor backed out. You know, and that's very rare that that happens, and the transplant centers are all over it. But in that case, um, we we found another match for that that person, and we ended a chain so that that person wasn't left without a donor. Um, we obviously that's a very significant risk, and it's a risk that we're um, you know that we we've 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 covered that risk, but we're always conscious that that you know going forward that's 
a possibility. So that's how we ultimately fix that problem. Now, with living donors, I know that sometimes they want to basically see where their kidney goes. <laughs> and have you have has there been any research on that or how the living donors feel about this? Well, you know, there's two types of living donors. There, you know, there's the good Samaritan donor and then there's the paired donor. And as a as a paired donor myself, I can tell you that I wasn't too concerned about where my kidney was going. I was concerned about my daughter and, and the kidney going to her. And that's a fairly common pattern. If you're a, a, an incompatible donor, if, if you're, a, we'll call them directed donor, you're not, you're not that concerned about where you're, you know, some people are where your kidney goes, but it's all anonymous. And so we don't even disclose that. The transplant centers don't disclose that unless everybody signs up for it. Having said that, it's always, we do a lot of reunions of, of chains and it's just a wonderful experience where the donors get to meet the person who got their kidney and, you know, all, all the way down the chain. It's very powerful. It seems like the donor, a, a directed donor is not, they're not thinking hard about where their kidney kidneys going, they're thinking hard about their loved one and what kidney their loved one is going to get. Um, good Samaritan donors are a different story because good Samaritan donors, they don't have a loved one that needs a kidney. They're just donating to a stranger. These folks are wonderful people. It's amazing, isn't it? Oh, you know, we're, the, the best part of our job is working with these, these the non-directed donors. They're just wonderful people. I mean, how can they not be? You know, they're just... Um, there's no words for it. Uh, so, so those folks uh, do care where their kidney goes. They want to make sure that you know they it goes to someone that will take care of it. Um, but then also the people who understand chains also want to see the chain propagate. They want to see the most people impacted. So they want to know that you're trying to get the most people transplanted possible. And sometimes, let's say if you're an A. A good a blood type good Samaritan donor. You're not going to be able to get that many people transplanted because we've got actually got a shortage of A recipients in our system. You know, you hear about the kidney shortage. Well, we got a shortage of recipients. You know, if you're an A recipient and you have an incompatible B donor and you don't have any antibodies, you'll get matched within a couple of days if you enter our program, which is why, you know, like there's a lot of desensitization program or blood incompatible desensitization. If you are an A donor with a B recipient, no antibodies, or if you're a B recipient with an A donor, incompatible A donor, no antibodies, you, you don't want to go through an incom blood incompatible, whatever, you know, desensitization. You want to go into a swap because you'll get matched immediately and you'll probably get, you'll end up with a good match, you know. So actually the, the easiest, easiest blood type to match in a swap is an AB, obviously, because they can receive from anybody. We find that in our in our system, uh, there's a big imbalance, and th there's a lot of A donors, and there's not a lot of A recipients. Um, in that, the, the converse is that for O blood types, there's a lot of O recipients and not a lot of O donors. And that's why if you're a compatible pair and you have an O donor, and you're an A recipient, you can get a great match because you unlock all kinds of combinations and you end up, the recipient, the A blood type recipient can then be run up against an array of like 100 donors. And if you got, you basically have 100 donors that were evaluating, you get the best match on that, that's where you're going to get the six antigen match. That's where you're going to get the really good age compatible matches. So um, that's why the, the word needs to get out to people who, ha who are A in, in some cases, B, but I really want to focus on A. A blood type recipients that have O donors that aren't great matches. 
you know, maybe maybe they're not matching on any antigens or just one, or their age incompatible, or their weight, you know, it's not a good weight match. Those folks can, number one, help themselves get a better outcome because they'll get a better donor match. But number two, they can get a bunch of other people transplanted. You know, you, if you come in with a compatible pair, you can typically get between one and six other people transplanted because you create, you're the missing link. And that's that's pretty that's pretty cool. And a lot of people, a lot of compatible pairs have entered our program just because they can help other people, not because they're getting a better you know donor. That's a side benefit. But they, there's an altruistic component with the pair, you know, the, the pairs too. It's not just the Good Samaritan donors. I equate this to dominoes. I don't know if you ever played Train the Dominoes, yeah. where you have to match them all up. And I'm like, if you can just play all your dominoes, that's the perfect case scenario. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it's kind of the same thing. You're trying to match up each end to see if people that's, yeah, that's work what's out. Happening. Well, tell us a little bit about the implementation because that's been one of the, how long does it take? I mean, because when you, you think about flying kidneys across the country and getting hospitals to work with each other and, you know, that can be a little bit complicated. So does that slow down the process or where do we need to prove in this area? Well, there's there's two components of that. Um, you know, how, how I'll, I'll kind of restate the question. How do you go from needing a transplant to completing a, a successful swap. There's two basic components. There's a component that says you've got to get to a transplant center that can get the recipient and the donors worked up, right? So there's, you know, sometimes that can be done. I've seen it go as fast as two weeks. I've seen it go as slow as six months. You've got to get to a transplant center that can get those workups done and get your data into the system. We don't do anything until the data is into the system, and the centers aren't going to put, can't put the data into the system until they've done all their workup, right? So there's there's that that front end process that we don't really don't see. We only see it once your records in the system. Once your records in the system, um, and I if you if you're a hot pair, and I call hot pairs ones that that can get matched very quickly, you're going to get matched in a week. Um, and then let's say that um, you get matched in a week. I send out a match offer. We have a three-step process where I give the centers uh, 48 hours to accept the match offer. Uh, and then once they accept the match offer, I give them 10 days to get the cross match done. And once the cross matches are done, then we, we move for a surgery date. Um, in some cases, we set the surgery date three weeks out. In some cases, it's two months out. Um, so the whole process, once I find a match, can take... Uh, it, uh, the fastest I've seen it go is two weeks, and that was like really fast. That was at Loyola on a very special situation. Um, and the slowest, I've seen centers uh, work on swaps for six months and still not get them done. That's improved because the centers that we're working with have gotten better and better and better at it. So I think it's probably a two-month window from you know start to finish once the match offer is found. Um, but I can't, you know, that upfront process, the workup varies greatly by center. Um, some centers move fast, some centers move very slow, and so you've got to kind of keep keep that in mind, too. And I've also learned that centers, like, work up one donor at a time. I mean, I'd like all my donors to come forward, but it, it really has to do with the fees for the insurance, and they work through one donor at a time sometimes. Some centers have a policy they only work up one donor. Others have a policy they work up six donors. So that also differs by center. Um, and I would say that... Uh, you know, from a from a matching perspective, um, I can tell you what donors you want worked up first because I can kind of almost measure the power of the donor. You know, clearly, if you have an O blood type donor, they have to be worked up first because an O blood type donor, 
um, you know, I'm assuming they're incompatible, is 20 to 30 times more powerful than an A or a B blood type. It's just because we have this shortage of O donors in the system. So let's say you have four donors. You have, you know, an A, a B, an AB, and an O, one of each blood group. The center doesn't need to work up four donors, not initially. I want them to work up the O. There, the chances of, you know, the, the additional A blood type and B blood type donors are not going to add much, unless, you, unless your O donor is like 64. You know, when they get above like 55, I start to see some declines. Uh, you know, people will turn down a 64-year-old a donor, even if it's an O blood type, if I'm shipping it across the country. So usually, you know, uh, there's a strategy around this that you want that most powerful donor worked up first. But having said that, you know, it certainly is in your best interest to have two or three more donors worked up behind that. And if you have like two O donors, I'd like to see them both worked up. You know, if you have uh, an O donor and say a B donor, you know, I'm not, I, it's not going to move the needle much to put the B into the paired exchange, but boy, you never know. And so, yeah, I mean, the best case scenario is you want all your donors worked up, but I would argue that you want them worked up in a certain sequence and you want the most powerful donors worked up first. Well, I've just learned that uh, Senator Alquist has introduced a bill in the state of California to start an altruistic kidney donor registry. Can you tell us? I mean, that's pretty exciting. Do you think this yeah. could be the yeah. beginning? And is the National Kidney Registry, are they just going to come take your system, hopefully? Because you've learned so much. We certainly don't want to reduplicate the wheel. Yeah, well, yeah, our ideal, what we'd like to see happen is that we write a private label um, kind of website for our system so that we can deploy a, a California um, living donor registry that integrates with the National Kidney Registry because you're going to get more people in California transplanted if you're combining those pairs and this Good Samaritan donors with the national pool. It's a, Again, it's a numbers game. Um, so I'm very excited about what's going on in California because I think, look, California is known for moving first on stuff like this. And there's a conversation in New York about this now. Um, and I, I would like to see every state in the United States have a, a state level uh, registry that is integrated in with the national system. And then I also want to make sure our national system is integrated with other countries. So, you know, if you think about it, there's potentially three different levels, the state, the national and the international. They should all talk. They should all interface. And the more exposure we get at the state level, like what's proposed here in California, um, the more people will realize that living donation is a possibility, and, and that's going to help shorten that wet wait list. That's the other thing, just the, the kind of the raw media power of, you know, because Governor Schwarzenegger has been personally involved in this, and he's, you know, he's, he's a guy, you know, like him or not as a politician, you know, a lot of people like him as an actor, and he's just a, you know, he's a great guy. What a what a what a, what a life he's lived, and and uh, with him behind this, uh, uh, more people will get exposed to living donation. I think more lives will be saved. So I, I'm we're we're very supportive of of that legislation, and we're we're talking to the folks that are kind of working in that arena, and um, we think that uh, there's a whole lot of upside in getting this done. Well, tell um, people how they can find out more about your organization because you know. As somebody who's lived with kidney disease for, you know, 41 years, I mean, this is so hopeful. I mean, when I had my first transplant in 1979, it was just, you know, the system was so antiquated.
antiquated. It was just not very progressive and you had to just kind of wait. And um, I waited 12 years. So this will just decrease the wait time for so many people and get people off the list and go back to living their lives. So how can they find out more about your organization? Well, there's two ways. The the quickest way is just to go to the internet, Google us, you know, kidney registry. Uh, our website is uh, uh, www.kidneyregistry.org, um, or you could go to one of our participating centers. So we have a list of all of our participating centers on our website. You know, we list how many transplants each center has done uh, through our system, also, so you can you can identify the the centers that have the most experience. And um, you can contact uh, the participating centers and they can give you more kind of personal information on, on how it's working in their center and, and what, it, you know, the more medical information on how to move forward. So in closing, um, what is your daughter up to now? What is she doing? Oh, she's, uh, she's, she's uh, doing really well in school and, and we uh, take a lot of bike rides together. I've gotten her, uh, you know, she's, she's becoming, I've always been kind of a workout fanatic. And so I'm, I'm hoping that she's picking that up. She's running with me these days. So. Um, she's just a great kid. She's uh, living life, and and you know she has uh, a lot to look forward to, and um, and I enjoy every minute with her. And what's her creatinine? Uh, point nine. Wow, point nine. Yeah, isn't that a beautiful number? When you get the labs back, every time you get the labs back and you see the creatinine, you just want to go out and celebrate. Yeah. Well, thank you, Garrett. I appreciate you so much for um, you know your expertise and knowledge, and basically your passion for this cause because uh, you don't have a medical background, do you? Not at all. No. And it's amazing how much you know about this. So. Well, well, thank, thank you very thanks, much. Thanks, we can control our own destiny. We can take charge of our health and ask questions about our medical options. We can form partnerships with our health care team. We can take steps towards self-improvement. We can be sensitive to the impact of our disease on our family. We can sing, dance, laugh, and enjoy our lives. We can appreciate today and look forward to tomorrow. We can help and support our fellow patients. We can pursue our hopes and dreams. We can make a difference. 